what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Susan Blackmore is a psychologist, lecturer and writer researching consciousness, memes and anomalous experiences and visiting professor at the University of Plymouth. She's a TED lecturer and often appears on radio, television and podcasts. The author of 15 books, 60 academic articles, 80 book contributions and many reviews including The Meme Machine which was published in 1999 and has been translated into nearly 20 other languages. Most importantly, she's a patron of Humanists UK. Sue, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. You're very welcome. I'm looking forward to finding out what I believe. (laughs) That's what lots of people have said. Yeah, I don't know if they're left. No, oh no, I'm not boring from the very start. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. They don't say it usually on the recording. It's okay. Um, I mean, this is an interesting question. Where to start, though, with you? Because um, a lot of the people who've uh, we've we've talked to on the podcast have had um, very specific, you know, quite narrow jobs or roles in which their values and beliefs, you know, you know where to start. But you've got such broad interests and such uh, changing interests over over the years, and you dwell over all sorts of different topics um, uh, at great depth, but with great range. Well, it's probably truer to say um, that I know what I don't believe, at least I know lots of things I don't believe, rather than being able to tell you more specifically what I do believe. Because it's kind of finding things that don't work and moving on into the great wide world of more things that might work if this doesn't. Let's start with that then. If Yeah, let's start with that then. If that's your approach, where do you think that came from? Is that scientific training? Well, I can, I can say it's that and it's partly that. But it came from very early on, as you know, when I uh, had a dramatic out-of-body experience was convinced that this was proof of life after death and souls and spirits and telepathy and clairvoyance and you know you name it paranormal phenomena Mm. and um took me several years of research and a phd to find that as far as i can tell there's no such thing so having found that those things don't work you know it was oh oh maybe this works oh well around the next corner maybe if, if if clairvoyance doesn't work maybe telepathy works if telepathy doesn't work maybe tarot cards work if they you know on and on and on until i got to the point of thinking well There are always other explanations. So that was a really very powerful lesson in the scientific method. I wouldn't have called it that then, but it was a lesson in having a a theory that you really, really care about and invest yourself in. I'm the one who believes in psychic phenomena and I'm going to prove to the world, all those closed-minded scientists who don't believe in it, that they're wrong. (laughs) And then I'm wrong. Um, That that was tough, you know. it's fine and it's fantastic to look back on and think that was a really good training to take your theories work as hard as you can to see if they're right and when they're wrong oh actually the world opens up to all more possibilities and so you move on and in my case you find out you're wrong lots of times but you kind of get used <laughs> to it 
that's a very positive way of looking at it, you know, being happy to be to find out you're wrong and that you move on to other things. Well, I'd much rather be right, but, you know, it's Yes, of... well, I was going to say, did you want to be right? I mean, presumably you wanted to be right. <laughs> of course, very, 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 I very, very, very much wanted it to be right, yes. Why was that? Why do you think you had so much invested in wanting it to be right? Now, of all the millions of questions people ask again and again, um, nobody's asked me that one. Um <laughs> Very interesting. I would say two reasons that I so desperately wanted to be right. One was the out-of-body experience and, and some of the other ex- experiences of oneness and, uh, and of expansion into the universe, these kind of things, seemed more real than real. And we ha- have reasons now to understand why they seem more real re- than real, because it's a seeming. It's how the brain is operating and what it makes real and and there's nothing else and you're totally invested in this thing but the fact that it feels and looks and in every way it seems more real than ordinary life more important more you know that was one driving emotional reason and the other reason for wanting to be right was the sort of I kind of demonstrated it a moment ago I'm going to prove to all those scientists they're wrong (laughs) I'm going to be right about this amazing theory I've got about memory and ESP being out in the Akashic records and blah 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 you know my my crazy theory um, and a great sort of, you know, I'll show them. And yeah. uh, it showed me, if you like. And was it an important part of your identity during the time you were doing it? I mean, that must be very painful, leaving the identity of you know being the person who's going to do this yeah. behind. Yeah. And not only that, but I kind of dressed in the hippie gear and I ran the Oxford University Society for Psychical Research and we invited mediums and spiritualists and such like and, and psychical researchers, obviously, and ghostbusters and people to come and give us talks and demonstrations. And we did Ouija boards and we went looking for haunted houses around the colleges. And, you know, uh, that that's who I was. So it was quite a change. To become skeptic Sue. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is, of course, another powerful identity, which maybe we come on to. But I wonder about what beliefs your time researching these things has left you about the people who do believe in them. You know, what did you find about those people? Did you find that they were sort of, I'm assuming they're not all vicious liars. Are they sort of, did you end up feeling fond of them? How did you, how did you diagnose the reasons why they believe in those things? There's no one answer to that. There are a few really awful frauds, um, and I came across a very, very few, but that's horrible. Um, um, Then there are the soppy, soft people for whom you can kind of tell that it's so important to their life to believe in God or the next life or that their wife is in heaven and they're going to meet her again, that I don't want to argue with them. Right. Then there are the... uh, argumentative types uh, in, for example, um, the Society for Psychic Research or, or in, in, in parapsychology in general, who argue they are so committed to their views they don't want to hear alternatives and it's really, really annoying and awful. And I, it made me angry and, and, and the more angry were the mediums and spiritualists who would say, you know, well, if you had an open mind, then you would believe X. <laughs> that made me so angry because having an open mind means you're willing to change your mind. It doesn't mean you're willing to believe something crazy, you know. Um, yeah. Well, it can do. I mean, they can be the same thing, but they often aren't. Um, and clearly this woman was going to, you know, the one I remember particularly, was going never going to change her mind about anything. And then finally, there are also rather few, but very valuable to me, people who believe <clears throat> within science, 
are not the ones who believe in God and religion, that's too difficult, but the ones who believe in the paranormal, who are still my friends or who do research on near-death experiences and are totally convinced that that proves life after death and, and are still friends and I can talk to them and then and enjoy them. There's a huge range of the way people are with beliefs in things that I think are rubbish or just not true. Are they still good scientists out of interest? I mean, well, I, I was exchanging with um, Ken Ring um, the other day. He's in his 80s and um, he sincerely believes that the evidence uh, for near-death experiences is evidence for life after death. And we have very sensible arguments about it. Is he a good scientist? Well, it's a long time. He did some of the very early work and collected the stories and was was really instrumental in putting together the idea that you know there's a he, he did a wonderful demonstration in the very early days, the 80s, when near-death experiences started to be researched, of um, how it's typically the tunnel, the light, the out-of-body experience, the, the um, life review, the boundary. It's not always in that order, but there are many more in that order, and the few, fewer people go further through that scheme towards the end. And I had been through the entire scheme. <laughs> so I, you know, I've been had all of those things. Um, now he did that very good research collecting all those stories. He jumps to conclusions that I think are unwarranted. Um, but that's fair enough and we can argue about it. Um, if he's a good scientist in the research sense, well I think he hasn't hasn't done research recently and maybe he is and maybe he isn't, but it doesn't matter if I can have really good arguments with him about what this shows or doesn't show and you know I can listen to his views and think, yeah, but I just don't get that. What about you know and enjoy it and that's nice. Is that something that you value and believe in that sort of argumentative life? Yes, 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 yes. okay, we found something I believe. I'm not sure belief is quite the word, but it'll do. Yes, I'm committed do. to it. Uh, I'm yeah. I find myself doing it and smiling at the same time. <laughs> what you believe that? Now come on. Now what? What about this evidence? And you know that sort of. Yes, I enjoy that. Yeah. A sort of joy of. Argument. I believe it's an enjoyment, but in what sense is it a belief? It is a belief. Uh, you're forcing me in to find out what I believe, as I thought you might. Um, <laughs> it is a belief that that kind of argument leads you somewhere, that you learn something from that kind of argument. You learn to, 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 to firm up your own um, arguments, your own beliefs, your own ideas. You learn to take note of other people's and either go, oh, I must think about that some more because it might be true, or that's absolute rubbish. Now, how can I find out it's rubbish? Is it really rubbish? Oh, you know, that's the way you, you, you learn. Yeah. I keep yeah. going into, well, what is the point of life anyway? There's no point. So why, why is learning important? And I think, well, you've got to make something important because there's no ultimate important. And you're smiling while you're doing it. That's just it. You yeah, find yeah. yourself smiling while you do it. I think that's a brilliant uh, description of the, 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 how you know what's giving you happiness in life. You find yourself smiling while you're doing it. Yes. Yes, indeed. I get quite a lot of emails from people who are really distressed by my not believing in free will, for example. And... And I have, I've been writing to one recently who said, you know, since he's he's watched lots of my um, videos and read stuff I've written about no free will, and it's made him terribly depressed and he's become suicidal. And I'm like, God, you know, am I responsible for mm. um, Obviously, I wouldn't take the responsibility that I killed him. If he killed himself, I'm, I really ho hope he won't. I don't think he will. But right. I take responsibility enough to write back to him. And one of the things he said is you always look so happy talking about this. So I tried to explain how it does make me happy to think there's no free will. And it is possible to live a happy, moral, 
kind life or attempting to be kind um, mm. and moral um, without having to base that in free will. So I hope I'm managing to explain it to him. <laughs> Well, would you would you like to explain it to us quickly? I mean, um, in terms of free will, your idea about free will and what that what it what it means or does, the consequences it does or doesn't have if we don't have free will. Well, I have a, a different view. I'm not a philosopher. A lot of people think I'm a philosopher. I am not. I've never had any proper philosophical training, and my views on free will do not go in the sort of, you know, determinism or not all that um, stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what I base it in is the need to discriminate between the full self, the idea of self, the illusory self that we think is in here, that is the experiencer of experiences, the thing that has consciousness and that wields free will and makes decisions. That is just, that's just a story the brain makes. We just need to discriminate between that and the whole person, the whole body. So I think the way that I live without free will, and it's taken a lifetime to let go of it it's not it sort of pops back and you have to go ah there's that feeling again that you know I might be tempted to think it's free will and then have a look at it and go but it's not these thoughts I these words coming out of my mouth now I didn't think and plan you know in what sense are they mine they're not they're not mine in the sense of the little me that I might think is in here that might survive death or that's a soul or anything like that they are coming out of the complexity of this um, complicated brain and this whole body sitting here, probably even the hand movements are part of the, my way of thinking. You know, it, it's a bodily thing, thinking. And words come out from there. I then take responsibility for those words and we come immediately to the, the sense of responsibility. So what I, the way I live without free will is to say, when I do something, that is the whole body and all these complex things that have turned it all into words. And there's a little me going at the top. I did that. And well, and in, in my case, now actually, it was just the whole system doing it. But then I have to take responsibility. And that, again, is not this little mythical self who's in there wielding the power, who takes responsibility. It's the whole thing. For example, if I say something hurtful for somebody and I see them look hurt, you know, I didn't mean to say that. I didn't plan it in advance. It inadvertently came out, but I'll take responsibility and say, oh, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean that. Or that's a bad example, but if I... Yeah, but why will you take responsibility if you... if you? Why would you take responsibility if you, if you, if you didn't do it? Well, that, that pushes you right back to the origins of it. Why do any of us want to behave well? Why are we intrinsically... Right. or or capable of of altruism of the most extraordinary kinds. And that, as you know, is a huge question to which there are many, many answers, but they are answers Mm -hmm. along the lines of, well, we're a social species. We want to get brownie points for being, you know, reciprocal (laughs) altruism. Um, We want to be liked. We'll get better food and more mating opportunities if we're liked by people. I mean, those kind of basic biological things are all there. Plus, you know, I often think, well, I was brought up by parents who made me behave and a school that made me, you know, taught me things. I think it's not all cultural. I think an awful lot of it is biological. But on top of that, the culture teaches you things. I do not need God or Jesus or Allah or any frightening monsters or anything else to, you know, say, I'll punish you if you're not good. I I need to feel amazingly. Well, actually, you know, at my age, what do I want to do? What is important to me? I've kind of gone past the 
I really want to be famous and everybody read my books kind of feeling. Um, mm. And, you know, I'm actually at a stage in my life of wondering whether I just do the garden and not, not do other <laughs> stuff. I mean, really? Um, now, again, I would take that as not being free will, as being, wow, what happens in a life? Amazing. Well, why do I want to be amazed and like it? Well, I just do. And you just kind of have to go back in the end to this is what happens. And, oh, it's fine. I don't need the free will thought. I don't need the idea that there's a me in there who's doing it all. And it goes away. And that sounds like you're also saying you don't need some of those other um, ideas that some people claim to need, like an ultimate meaning or a bigger purpose frame or so on. You're actually saying um, you're just a whole person enjoying the whole environment for what it is. Is that? Yes, but obviously not always enjoying. I mean, also horrible sometimes. And obviously (laughs) absolutely hating it. And obviously sometimes, you know, crying and shouting and being upset and I mean you know I'm not some sort of spiritual you know constantly (laughs) constantly equanimous happy and whatever I have long 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 believed we live in a pointless universe there is no ultimate purpose to anything other than replication of information so I'm really interested at the moment I'm reading lots of books on 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 information and entropy and 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 the relationships between them and AI and with the relevance to my memes and Dream's third replicator mm. idea and, and, and that sort of applying evolution. And so any purposes that we have, so, so the universe itself is, is just, you know, it's just information getting copied, varied and selected. And that, but that drives the creation of organisms who have purposes. And we have to make up our own purposes. And if we then say, well, I need free will to make up a purpose. No, you don't. I used to say um, to uh, students, I love William James and, and, and he talked about getting out of bed in the morning. And he didn't talk about this precisely to do with free will, but it's really helpful. He would say, imagine yourself in a cold room with no fire. Well, they didn't have central heating in those days. You're in a room with, <laughs> with um, uh, no fire and it's really cold and everything in your body, you've got to get up and everything in your body is rebelling against the feeling of getting the blankets off and getting out of bed. And what happens is I don't really know uh, how I get up. Suddenly I found I have got up. And I yeah. ask students uh, to just lay in bed in the morning. If you think that life's pointless and there's no point doing anything, well, just lie in bed in the morning and just just lie there. Well, what happens? Mm. You need the loo. You're hungry. You want breakfast. You get up. You see on the table something that reminds you that you wanted to go to whatever. And, you know, the day begins and off you go. And it was very interesting, the, the students' responses to doing that. I mean, they were surprised by the fact that they did not get depressed. (laughs) And they quite, most of them, very quickly got bored and jumped up and did something. (laughs) (laughs) It it does, that that way of thinking about it does sort of lay bare the the slightly vain vain nature of the question, you know, what is it all for? Why does your life have meaning? Because it it does sort of, what lies behind that is an implication that, you know, we are all terribly important and there is some... (laughs) Um, greater picture that we're part of and actually we're just living our daily lives as you say in a pointless universe so you know what meaning ought there to be people who have people who make meaning in their life are happier than those who don't and the trouble with that is that they can make their meaning out of god and life after death instead of in this life and all sorts of things which i think you and i wouldn't think were the best things to drive your life to rather to stay in this life but you need some kind of purpose I think to be a 
to be content with life. And most people do. Most people, they think they want to get a job. They think they want to get money. They want, think they want to get married or not get married, or they want to have children or dogs or whatever it is. You know, they find themselves wanting things. And where from where comes the oomph, the energy, the, the capacity to keep on working when it doesn't go right, like investigating the paranormal would be an example. I've no idea. But I've often felt this, that I was very, very lucky to have an obsession. I mean, obsessions in other people can be really annoying, can't they? But, you know, my obsession with trying to prove to the world that the paranormal was true just meant that I, I, I mean, as a student doing my PhD, I spent every evening at home with handheld calculator doing T-tests, putting in all the data. It was so time-consuming. Hard to imagine now, isn't it? Um, yeah, um, but that's what I wanted to do because I was so sure I was right and I'm going to prove it. Now, that's why I say it was a gift to me, really. I mean, the whole out-of-body experience thing was a gift from the universe or from whatever. Um, but mm-hmm. so was it turning into an obsession because I didn't have to say, well, what was the point of it all? Because I had a point. So I don't, that's when I find it hard if people are saying, yeah, but there's no point, so I don't have any point. And, you know, I can't give yeah. them the point. I can only say, Look inside, look inside and see if you can find a point, see if you can find what moves you, what makes you as a human being, a biological thing, want to go towards that, wants to help other people, want to see them smile, want to create something. I mean, whatever it might be, but I can't do that for them. And then if they say, well, I'd need free will to be able to do that. Well, no. Hearing Pete, I don't actually say this, but I think it. (laughs) Well, hearing me tell you, why don't you? get on and do whatever it is, you know, <laughs> might just be the thing that's needed. But, it, you know, yeah. it, let's hope there are plenty of people around them saying, you know, we, we, why don't you have a go at this or try this? But some people's lives leave them without such uh, capacity. And that's a lot of problems that, that we have. Yes. And that's a tragedy, isn't it? But it's, it's, not, it's, it's also not normal. Most it people is. It get is. out of bed. But it's a tough world we're in where the uh, technology is making things very inhuman. And I think mm. a lot of us, certainly me, are finding, I just wish I could talk to somebody in the shop, not a machine. Or, and, you know, it's just or on the phone or, or all these things being automated. It's very hard. And I can use the computer, but I know, got, you know quite a lot of people who don't have a mobile phone and they're terrified of having one. And mm. life's very hard in that case. So is that something that, that is quite important to you then about, there's a, a belief about the the world we're living in at the moment, that it is becoming depersonalized, inhuman life at the self-checkout sort of... Yes, uh, dis- yes. Yeah, yeah it, it bothers me. Um, and I, I think that it's inevitable that we're going in this direction, but surely we can do it in a nicer way. Um, I think the world is in a very peculiar place at the moment and it's very hard. But I, I suppose when it comes to what you believe, here's an interesting one. Fairness. Little kids in a playground were very early on, well, at home anyway, were very on saying, it's not fair, it's not fair. And, you know, my brother's got, oh, that was mine, it's not fair. He's taken his, oh, his big piece is bigger than mine, it's not fair. Very, very common. This is what I mean by the kind of intrinsic things we get from evolution, from biology. Now, I believe that a fair society would be a happier one. And I think I believe that happiness is important, but I find that very hard to justify. And as I said at the beginning, I'm not a philosopher, so I'm not, going to go into deep and difficult um, attempts to answer that one. But if you accept that most humans 
have an intrinsic wish for fairness, then to find ourselves living in such an unequal society is very distressing. And I feel as somebody with more money than I really need, I should be contributing more, but I'm not going to just, well, you know, obviously I give to charity, but I'm I'm not going to solve the problem that way. I, I wish we could live in a fairer society. So that's a kind of a, a very fundamental belief in something being important. Yeah, that's important. I, I want to stay then with with some with with uh, something more of a, a social belief or social issues, and come on to talk a little bit about drugs and, and legal legalization of drugs, because I know that that's a cause that you've associated uh, many one of many causes that you've associated yourself with. And there are two aspects there. I think that it might be useful to to find out what you really believe about. Firstly, the use of drugs generally, because I think you think that drugs can have. Uh, life-enhancing effects uh, in, in, in various ways, or at least be, be interesting or positive experiences that, that, that people might have. And secondly, the whole, the whole policy question of, of legalization of drugs and, and, and what's going on in the world and in uh, our own country with this losing war on drugs. Start, starting with drugs themselves then, I mean, you've written about, about the use of certain drugs in, in various places. Do you think they, are in, they can be for many people an ingredient in a good life? Oh, absolutely they can. But I would first of all say you can't just go drugs. I mean, nicotine has (laughs) precious little use, is very addictive, and uh, it spoils a lot of lives. Uh, Alcohol is very mixed. Um, Heroin um, uh, is fantastic for morphine and, you know, for for painkilling and, uh, you know, when seriously needed and really not in people who simply use it to escape from the miseries of, or difficulties of their life. So, mm. so the, the, the drugs that I'm really interested in are cannabis and the psychedelics. And what's so fantastic, at last, at last, there's an, en- enough willingness um, in government and grant-giving bodies and so on to allow research on, on um, the psychedelics that should have been going on since they first really emerged into the West 100 years ago, or certainly, um, you know, the research that was going on when um, LSD was discovered in 1943, mm. and then there was lots of research in the 50s, and then it all stopped with the drugs laws in, in, uh, in the late 60s. Um, and that research was already showing the most fantastic things. There's a real problem um, because... For, take, for example, the use of um, LSD or psilocybin, any of the major hallucinogens. Uh, for end-of-life care. Now, Mm. many people facing the end of life, they know they're going to die with whatever disease, can be terrified, upset by what was the point of it all, um, all sorts of terrible things, oh, feeling guilty about things they haven't sorted out beforehand or feeling angry about things they remember. All the kind of usual stuff that we have as humans can be awful when you think you're going to die. Now, a drug like that that... um, opens up your mind, mm. very often can make, I mean, it can be horrendous, but then if you've got help with people sitting with you who know what to do, <clears throat> the horrible bits can be yeah. very useful and not very long. Um, but this opening up to questions about who am I? What have I done? What's important to me? And the, the, all sorts of things, the sense of self can change dramatically, be transformed. Now, when people are doing that at, to help others who are dying, typically they'll have two sessions of the drug, occasionally three, and the transformation in those people can be really profound. Mm. And if you take also something like 
um, use of certain psychedelics for depression or for helping release from addiction. Again, it's the insights that happen during the trip and very often in the following 24, 48 hours, those changes to the self, to do changes to how you feel about things, uh, how you feel about your past, all of those things. Um, and depression can be really changed quite dramatically and addiction can be helped too with one or two or three trips, which then you have to have quite a long time after each one of sort of integrating it. But you don't keep on taking the drug. So it is no right. use to drug companies. Drug companies are never going <laughs> to make money out of something that you can get from a mushroom in your garden. Well, probably not, but, um, you know, somewhere. Or you can just go and buy once they're legal. Um, they're never going to be able to make money out of those drugs because you don't take them very often. I was at a wonderful conference long ago where um, there's a, a, a website called Eroid. It's an anagram of weirdo because the people who run it are self-professed weirdos. <laughs> Um, but, um, at this conference, they, they, they were doing mega online surveys and they asked users of LSD, if LSD was cheap and readily available and you could buy it any time, how often would you take it? Mm. Now, what do you think their answer was? I mean, the average answer, obviously they varied. The average answer. Ooh, once a month. Uh, not bad. It was about oh. once or twice a year. Um, Oh, I'm uh, above average in my take in my aspirations, yeah, obviously. Yeah, 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 your aspirations. <laughs> but you'd probably find if you started taking it once a month, you'd probably find it was a bit much. And you'd, you, I don't know, yes, I don't okay. know. I mean, I tend to have it every two or three years. So I've actually had a right. long gap, so then I might have it two or three times in a year and then another long gap or something. But it's not, again, it's not something no. that um, that uh, um, that you that you would want to do very often because the, the changes mm. take a long time to integrate with your life and and it's quite an undertaking. And that's the position well, of it is that you you it's like l learning a new thing or reading yeah. a new or taking a new idea. You yeah. take time then to yeah. integrate the experience into yourself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's when you take psychedelics with that sort of attitude. You can right. just go, and people do. They go to party. I mean, I've never been to a party drinking alcohol, smoking dope, and taking LSD at the same time, and I wouldn't. I think that would be a waste of all right. of them. <laughs> but uh, but people do, and I don't know very much about what, what that's like. So, yes, and as far as the drugs are concerned, if we stick to certain drugs then, and we need to learn more, and at last the research is going on, so we will find out more. But then you say about the legalization and so on, well, the whole war on drugs is an utter di disaster. Always has been right from the start. I don't blame them for not realising at the beginning, but I certainly blame them for not realising after five years or 10 years or 20 years that if you go on what you're basically doing by making drugs illegal is handing the power of very powerful substances over to criminals who have no interest right. whatsoever in what happens to the people who take the drugs. They don't care if they... Um, contaminate them with poisons of various kinds they don't care if they keep changing the uh, the the dose the, the strength of it so that people take overdoses and die of course they don't care well but we would have laws if it was all legal anyway right. we're going to get that a transform a wonderful organization um for yes. drug reform um based in bristol and so when i lived there i i was very much involved but less so now uh, but they've brought out all sorts of um, investigations of different methods used around the world. So then as a country, we should be able to look at those. We should be having in Parliament, you know, serious debates about this. Which way should we go with it? 
Exactly, because there's so much. It's like assisted dying. It's, I mean, there's oh. when so many countries in the world have made positive moves. We've got no excuse really, because there's so many things to learn from. We can't claim it's not been tried anywhere, exactly. or it's not. And it's the same exactly. sort of issue. I have noticed actually that in Parliament, a lot of the prominent parliamentarians who are advocating drugs reform have 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 been, often been members of the parliamentary humanist group, like Baroness. Oh, Beecher, members of what group? Of the humanist group in Parliament. Oh, have so, they? Oh, right. Maybe there's a maybe there's a, a tendency here. <laughs> I think there would. I think there should be, don't you? It would be, I suppose. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I would think, in my idea of what a humanist is, you care more. You're, you should be compa- You are compassionate about other people. You care about what happens to them, what their lives are like. Now, if you look with that attitude towards the war on drugs the criminals who shouldn't be in prison, who've got sucked into this, the kids who get sucked into county lines and have their, their teenage years utterly ruined. You know, these are, the th- these are the consequences. If you care about people's lives, you'd make the drugs legal. You'd, you'd work out ways to, to uh, make it as, as difficult as possible to get into trouble with those drugs and help for, for, for people who did get into trouble with it. Uh, you'd have ways of learning how to use them. And you wouldn't have the criminals uh, making all this money and exploiting people. So, so I think it's quite understandable that the humanist view coheres so well with an attitude towards drugs that let's make a way in which drugs can be positive in society and not the opposite. And I keep writing to my MP about this. And um, he is very anti-drugs. He is also a Christian and also a creationist. He genuinely believes that God made us in his image. Now that view, he's going to stick to those views and that's going to make it very difficult for him to take what, you know, what I think of as a humanist view, which doesn't matter what was written in the Bible, that's a long time ago. Um, And what matters now is the effects of our laws and the way we use drugs on society. Being open-minded and then being sceptical, arguments leading you somewhere. The self as the whole embodied person with no free will, but happy and good. Sue Blackmore, thank you for telling us what you believe. <laughs> thank you very much, Andrew. I've enjoyed being forced to think about it. Perhaps even found out a bit more about what I do believe. <laughs> even better. That was Susan Blackmore speaking for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanists UK, and this was the 11th and final episode of the fifth season. There are now 50 episodes available to listen to. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about Humanism, Humanist UK and the work that we do, you can find out more on the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining as a member or supporter. You can also find out more about Humanism by purchasing the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available at all good bookshops. <laughs>